0: All right, welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on 1 Timothy. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9-15. through 15. And as we noted in the last recording, this section really cannot be separated out from the previous section. We had to do it for the sake of time, and it's often done in commentaries and in Bible teaching— And that's fine as long as we recognize that it's still part of the previous section and it's directly connected logically and thematically to the previous section. And so before we jump into the details of this section, let's make sure we remember where we're at in the context. Paul is beginning in chapter 2 to give specific instructions to Timothy about some of the things he wants to set in order in the church in Ephesus. In chapter 1, Paul charged Timothy to address the false teaching and to make sure he's bringing sound teaching to bear in the church. And so here in chapter 2, he gives those specific instructions. And the first thing he says is he wants all people to pray all the church to pray, and he wants them to pray for everybody, all people, including those who are in charge, emperors and kings and rulers and all of that, because God wants all people to be saved. Then in verse 8, Paul uh, gave a specific instruction to the men, and that instruction was he wants the men to gather together and to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands. And he wants them to do so without anger and disputing. And probably the reference to anger and disputing is motivated by some of the things that are going on in the church with the false teachers that, as you can tell when you read through the letter, is creating a fruitless discussion. It's creating uh, word battles and envy and strife and constant friction and, and all sorts of controversial disputes and all that that's going on in the church with the false teachers and so that probably is what motivates Paul uh, to say what he does about without anger and disputing in verse 8 and so I want everyone to pray I want the men specifically to pray and I want them to make sure they put aside their all their arguing and all their anger and all their frustration and just pray together and pray for each other and then after giving that instruction to the men he now has some instruction specifically for the women but notice, those instructions specifically to the women, begin with the word likewise. That is, uh, that links us really back to the therefore of verse 8. And that therefore is linked to everything in verses 1 through 7. And so Paul's instructions here in verses 9 and following to women is just part of the same set of instructions he's been giving in the previous eight verses. And so in view of what's going on in the church in view of God's desire for all people to be saved, in view of Paul's desire for the, the people there to pray for all people in town, including rulers and all that, here's what Paul expects of women in the church. And so he's had an instruction to everybody. He gave a specific instruction to the men about praying without arguing and disputing. And now he gives some specific instructions to the women. And there really are two big categories he focuses on as instructions to the women how women should dress, and how women should learn. Those are the two big categories. And so the first uh, category is dress and appearance. And here's what he says in verse 9. He says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive apparel. Now, let's clarify a few technical details because I do think Um, The translation kind of maybe can send us in a certain direction that we don't want to go. We just want to make sure we're hearing it properly. So when he says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, more literally, it is like respectful clothing or orderly and decent clothing and not even just clothing, but the whole way they carry themselves. The word does refer to clothing, but it refers to like your whole deportment, your whole way of carrying yourselves and the way you present yourselves, including, you know, the way you do your hair and your dress and your makeup and everything else. And so he wants women to present themselves and carry themselves and um, the way they appear and all of that in a way that's orderly and honorable and respectful. That's the, the force of that word, proper. And then he says he wants them to do that modestly and discreetly. A couple things we need to clarify. We almost exclusively, it seems like, in uh, our day and age, hear the word modestly, particularly with regard to... Um, dress that doesn't you know is not inappropriate sexually speaking or anything like that but the the word is broader than that and you can see in what Paul's talking about here he's thinking not just that regards he's thinking primarily about you know, braided hair, gold, pearls, expensive apparel. Like he's saying, I want you to dress modestly so that you don't present yourself as like, you know, this is, doesn't become like a fashion show and a status symbol in the church. Like, ooh, there's the haves in the church and there's the have-nots. That's what he has in mind. Um, so the modestly and the discreetly here has to do with uh, the braided hair, the gold, the pearls, the expensive apparel. Also, that word discreetly in this translation is a very common word in 1 Timothy, and normally it's translated something like self-controlled or sober. It's the idea of level-headed and sensible. And so discreetly, I'm not even sure where they came up with that translation, and it doesn't really fit what he's saying. He's saying, I want you to dress in a way that's orderly and respectful. I want you to present yourself in a way that's orderly and honorable, and then he he clarifies that modestly and not discreetly, but modestly and soberly, modestly and sensibly. That's the idea. And then he amplifies that in the second half of the verse where he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive apparel, the kinds of things that a very small percentage of the population in their day and age, and as well in most places, could afford. The kinds of things that were used to, you know, be status symbols and to make you stand out and to show how much better you were than others by the way you could dress and present yourselves. And Paul's like, let's not do that in the church. We don't get into this sort of things. In fact, the most important way about uh, your deportment and the way you carry yourselves, the most important thing about the way you present yourselves isn't your appearance, but, verse 10, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. And so Paul wants them to focus not so much on, you know, showing off how wealthy they are and showing off how much they have and showing off their status by their clothing and makeup and hairstyles and all of that, rather he wants them to focus their energies on good works. Because that's proper for women making a claim to godliness. If you claim to know God and claim to be in a good relationship with God, then the most important thing are the way you serve God in your conduct and your behavior with good works, in your character and the way you serve others. That's what really matters. So let's make that the focus of how you present yourself. So that's the first category, dress and appearance. Present yourselves um, modestly and sensibly by means of good works because that's appropriate. The second category is instruction, how women learn, how they ought to learn in the church. And so verse 11 says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Now, literally, you could translate that, a woman in quietness should learn in all submission. In other words, the main statement being made in this sentence is this, a woman should learn and then that's qualify with a, a few other words and phrases but that's the main statement in uh, verse 11 a woman should learn like mary in the gospel sitting at the feet of jesus right women are being invited into a discipleship relationship to jesus and that means they get to come they get to sit among the disciples and they get to learn that was that was new That was fairly radical in the ancient world. And it was one of the things that elevated the status of women and drew them to the church was all of a sudden they're being treated with dignity as somebody who actually gets to come and learn and be a part of those kind of discussions. And that's the main thing being said in verse 11. So let's not lose that in our discussion about everything else that's said around this verse. The other thing we need to note is when it says a woman uh, should learn in, in quietness. Um, We have to make sure we hear that word properly because that word quietness does not mean in silence. He's not saying women must be silent. In fact, in verse 2, he already said up above in the preceding paragraph, he already said to everyone, men and women alike, that he wants them to pray for their leaders so that they can live a quiet life. And that word "quiet life" there is from the same root as the word "quiet" here, and it doesn't mean silent there, and it doesn't mean silent here. So Paul is not saying women should learn, but they got to keep their mouths shut and never say anything. That's not quite the point of what Paul is making. We already know from Paul's uh, earlier writings that they weren't silent in the churches. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 16. Paul makes it clear that women were praying out loud in church. Women were prophesying in the church. There was no debate about that. And so they weren't silent in the churches. And so that's not what it means. What does it mean then if it doesn't mean silence? In classical Greek, this particular word referred to things like peacetime instead of war. It could refer to a place of solitude or it referred to tranquility. The Greek author Herodotus used the word for a disposition that is quiet. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word the same way, for freedom from war or the stillness of night or a tranquility of life. What sense does that give you? Well, it indicates that the key idea is a calm, quiet, peaceable manner and demeanor and disposition. It's the idea of, that, that we're free from rancor and cattiness and argument and debate and some kinds of, sometimes the, the sort of thing that can happen, not only between women, but between men and women and between men and men and all that. It's the same sort of thing as he said to the men get rid of that arguing and that disputing. We're really talking about the same sort of thing here where we're talking about a peaceable and quiet disposition. So that's the first way the women are supposed to learn. They should learn in quietness with this quiet peaceable disposition the second is in all submission and that probably goes right along with the first rather than being argumentative or overbearing or you know over talking everyone or being defiant they ought to be peaceable and cooperative and helpful in the learning environment. Rather than dominating the discussion, rather than being unwilling to listen, uh, instead of that, they should have a spirit that's arranged under those who are leading the teaching session, those who are teaching them. That's the idea of submission, to be arranged under that. And so Paul is trying to get the women to remember, you're being invited into this learning environment and this is, this is a great opportunity, but you need to be cooperative and peaceable and not argumentative. And so again, in the context of the letter, there's clearly situations behind this that we don't know all the details of, but the men needed to make sure they weren't arguing and fighting and the women need to make sure they're being cooperative and peaceable. That seems to be what's going on here in Ephesus that's affecting the situation. Now, in the next verse, Paul seems to amplify what he has in mind. And here's what he says in verse 12. But I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over man, but to remain quiet. Now, notice how he restates the idea of quietness here. It's the same word. Uh, Again, it doesn't mean silence, right? We've already said that. It has to do with a disposition that's ready and willing to listen and learn. Instead of being argumentative or refusing to listen or dominating the discussion or the situation, right? That they need to be willing to be a, a cooperative, peaceable part of the conversation. And since he restates that here, it indicates that really verse 12 is an amplification of the point made in verse 11. So verse 11 states the point positively. Here's what women should do. They should learn this way. Verse 12 amplifies the point negatively. And here's what they should not do. And Paul specifies two things that he doesn't want them to do. And those two things are to teach and to exercise authority over a man. Now, it's possible that those two things are like a package deal. You could grammatically, you could understand it that way. And some scholars point that out. And so it could be taken as a package deal. But even if that's how we understand it, it's effectively still two specific actions that make up one whole package. And so Paul says to the women, don't teach. I don't allow a woman to teach. And this certainly isn't all encompassing. We have to make sure we clarify that. There are definitely some situations where women should teach. Paul tells women, and for example, in Titus chapter 2, that they're, they're to teach younger women certain things. And so when Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach, it's in a specific setting, in a specific environment, the one that he's dealing with here in Ephesus. When the whole church is gathered together in a learning situation, Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach. And again, just to make clear and restate, Paul didn't believe women needed to be silent in the church. That's perfectly clear in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 and following. They prayed and prophesied out loud in church. And so that's not what he's getting at when he says, don't teach. Uh, but Paul does distinguish the role of teacher from the role of prophet. For example, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. You have prophets in the churches, but you also have teachers. And in fact, there in Ephesians chapter 4, the role of teacher is joined with the role of pastor or elder or shepherd. That's what he's referring to. So it's it's a teacher, elder, and it's joined with that. In fact, in chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, Paul's going to speak to the elders and say they're the ones that work hard at preaching and teaching. Um, and that seems to be the idea here. Um, The function or the role of teacher in the church was reserved for particularly the elders, and they are male. We'll learn that in the next chapter. And so he doesn't want the women to assume that position in this particular context. He also says, don't exercise authority over men. Now, this phrase is actually a little more, or a lot more, challenging. It reflects one word in Greek, and it's the only place in the entire New Testament that this particular word shows up. Not only that, there are only about seven to eight known uses of this word prior to the New Testament, and that means we don't have a whole lot of data to work with. And so scholars are a little bit divided on exactly how we should understand this word, and you'll see that reflected in some of the translations. Some say exercise authority, as the one I'm using here does, and that it just refers to authority in general. Some say assume authority, implying something maybe a little more negative, like take authority that doesn't belong to you, or like be domineering or something like that. Now, it is a little bit unclear, and scholars, as I noted, are are a bit divided. From my research, it seems like while there are forms of this particular word in the seven or eight uses prior to the New Testament we have, there are forms of the word that can sometimes include the idea of domination or even violence. That's not the root idea of the word. And so the context would have to indicate something about that sense. Otherwise, the basic meaning of have authority is the sense of the word. Now, it's true that typically when Paul speaks of authority, he uses uh, other words for it than this one. So why this rare of a word? Man, I, I just don't know why. And it's hard, you know, without having Paul here to talk to us. So since the context does not indicate anything violent or anything like that, we probably should just understand the word in its uh, basic meaning, which is the idea of having authority, exercising authority. Um, regardless of what one thinks about the meaning of this word, the fact that uh, verse 12 here is connected to verse 11 makes it clear that Paul wants the women to learn in all submission. That is under authority. That's how he wants them to learn. So however we understand this particular word, we need to make sure we don't miss what Paul said in verse 11, um, that there seems to be a need in the church at Ephesus to make it clear that these women have to arrange themselves under the authority of the church and get rid of any rancor or argumentativeness or cattiness. And as we'll see in the next paragraph, the elders in the church were men. We'll see that in chapter three. A bit later, as I noted in chapter five, it's the elders who work hard at preaching and teaching. So it seems to be that Paul has that in mind here. Paul wants women to arrange themselves under the teaching authority, the teaching ministry of the elders in the church and, and, and maybe quit causing disturbances or whatever. They're in some sense maybe contributing to that. So quit causing disturbances, don't start causing disturbances, something like that. Maybe some of the women in Ephesus were being overbearing. Maybe some of them were controlling the lesson times. Uh, Maybe some of them were actually over-talking, like they were just dominating the lesson times. We're not privy to the exact details or the specifics of what's going on in the teaching times, but Paul's prescription uh, for them is to have a quiet disposition and to arrange themselves under the teachers and, and be ready to listen and learn. Then what he does in verse 13 is he gives the reason for it. And to do so, he goes back to the events of Genesis chapter 2 and 3, specifically to the order of creation and to the deception of Eve, and then even on into what comes next with childbirth. And so he doesn't expand on these points. He just states these points very briefly. I Man, I wish he would have actually expanded on them because it's led to a whole lot of speculation and there's questions that I have, I'm sure everyone has, But Paul doesn't expand on them. He just brings these things directly from Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And so here's what he says, verse 13. For, that is explaining, giving a reason. He's giving the reason for what he just said. For, it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. This is from Genesis chapter 2. God formed Adam out of the, the earth and formed him. And it wasn't good for him to be alone. And he couldn't fulfill the purpose for humanity all by himself. So then God created Eve out of the man and brought her to him, right? And that's the creation order. Now, Paul doesn't explain how this simple fact um, supports why women should learn with a quiet disposition and all submission. And therefore, it's actually unwise for us to do that for him. Since he doesn't expand on it, we probably shouldn't do it for him. And unfortunately, sometimes Bible teachers and scholars have done that, and there's been all sorts of chauvinistic ideas suggested because of that, and it's bothersome. Paul doesn't expand on it. He simply calls attention to the order of creation, and he simply believes that the order of creation supports what he said to women here. We should leave it at that. Then he gives a second part of his reason, and it comes from Genesis chapter 3. Notice verse 14. He says, and it wasn't Adam who was deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer. So there we are in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. God has made Adam, and then he created Eve. That's Genesis chapter 2. The very next thing that happens is Genesis chapter 3, where we get the fall, and we get the event that's being referred to here with the deception of Eve. And so the woman was in the garden. We can read in Genesis 3 that in some sense, Adam is with her. It specifies that in Genesis 3. The serpent tempted Eve to eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She ate, and then she gave some of that fruit to Adam who was with her. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Then, when God confronts Adam and Eve on this, or he confronts Adam first, and Adam blames Eve, sadly. And then when he confronts Eve, here's what Eve says. Eve says back to God, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So as much as some people have reacted adversely to what Paul writes here about the woman was deceived and became a wrongdoer, Paul is simply actually recalling Eve's words to God in the garden. The serpent deceived me. That's all Paul is doing is he is actually taking the story and taking Eve's words and recalling them here in verse 14. It's also important to bear in mind that most of the time in Paul's letters, Paul places the blame for mankind's predicament for the fall, for sin, and for death, and all that. Paul places the blame for that, not on Eve, but squarely on the shoulders of Adam, right? You can read that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, For since by a man death came, uh, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. You could read the extended discussion of that exact same point in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, where it's Adam. So Paul is not some sort of misogynist who puts all the blame for all of mankind's problems on Eve. That's that's completely to misread Paul, to misread not only this text, but the other text in Paul. That's just not what Paul is doing here. When Paul is talking about the whole of mankind, Paul clearly holds Adam accountable and responsible for the predicament we are in. And then he holds each one of us personally accountable for that as well. But here, who's Paul talking to? He's not talking to all mankind. He's talking to women about a situation with women in the church at Ephesus. And therefore he presents Eve as like the representative woman. She is the female federal head, if you will. She's the one who is the the fountainhead for all women. And once again, Paul doesn't uh, explain how recalling Eve's words here in verse 14 and what happened to her in the garden, Paul doesn't explain how that actually supports his point as to why women should learn with a quiet disposition and all submission. And so once again, it's unwise for us to do that for him. And again, there's been All sorts of chauvinistic ideas suggested for that. Like I've heard heard Bible teachers say things like women are more susceptible to deception. It's like, that's not Paul's point. Paul is simply recalling what happened in the garden and he doesn't expand on it. And so it's foolishness for us to try to do that for him. Now, I do wonder if part of Paul's intent is to provide a bit of maybe a corrective theology for the prevailing notion in Ephesus about women. Like, the city of Ephesus actually had a kind of a unique view of women that was some sort of almost like a a women's supremacy sort of thing. Um, It would be difficult to overstate the importance of Artemis to the city of Ephesus. You read the last half of Acts chapter 19 and you'll get a sense of just how important she was and how much of a big deal the temple of Artemis was. The entire life uh, and uh, the entire worldview and everything in Ephesus was tied up with the goddess Artemis. And in the Artemis myth, Artemis, a female, was born first. She was born first. Notice what we just said. And no, it wasn't Eve that came first. It was Adam who came first. And then she helped deliver her brother Zeus. This is how the Ephesus-Artemis myth went down. And so her temple was run by women. And so there's this sort of uh, ultra elevation of women that's sort of in the, the air that people breathe in the city of Ephesus. In the biblical creation story, however, uh, the woman didn't come first, but the man did. And so there's a bit of a corrective to the Artemis myth that may be adversely affecting things in the church. And in a certain sense, even the note about quoting Eve's words about being deceived sort of, you know, helps kind of bring women back down to level ground for a little bit, right? Instead of this overinflated view that was uh, such a tendency there in Ephesus. And so I do wonder if part of Paul's intent here is to ground the believers there in the church in the biblical worldview from the creation story in Genesis chapter two and three and the biblical creation order of males and females. And even to bring women, like I said, back down to earth from the story of the fall. Now, After mentioning the biblical creation order and the biblical uh, account of how the first sin went down, Paul then makes a very perplexing statement in verse 15, the last verse of the chapter here. Here's what Paul says. He says, but women will be preserved through childbirth if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity with moderation. That whole sentence is perplexing. Like, where did that come from, Paul? That seems a bit random. Uh, Let me just note before we look at the the rest of the sentence, the last word with moderation. Again, that's not really a great translation. It's the same word that was translated discreetly up above about a woman's dress, which we said discreetly wasn't a great translation. The word means sensibleness, sobriety. Um, It's the idea of being level headed and having self control. And so, like, you don't want faith, love, and sanctity in moderation. You want that in, you know, like full amount, don't you? So when he says, if they continue in faith, love, and sanctity, it's not with moderation, it's with self-control. It's with being level-headed and sensible, which seems to have been an issue. That's why it gets mentioned twice with regard to the women. So whatever's going on at Ephesus, um, there's a need for the women to sort of be sensible and have self-control. Now, what is, why does Paul bring up this whole thing about childbirth and being preserved through childbirth and all of that? Well, I'm pretty sure that part of the reason Paul brings up childbirth is because he's following the sequence of the creation story. Genesis chapters 2 and 3, right? You have the creation of Adam. Then you have the creation of Eve. Then you have the deception and the sin of Eve and following suit with Adam. Well, what comes very next in this story? Well, what comes very next in the story is God pronouncing the consequences on the serpent. And then he turns to Adam and has consequences for Adam. And then he turns to tell Eve and all women after her what the result will be for her. What does he say to the woman, Eve, in Genesis chapter 3? Well, he says this. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. That's what's next. So it's not actually totally surprising that... Paul goes there next as well here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 because he's following the sequence. Creation order, um, fall, and then childbirth. That's the exact sequence we have in Genesis 2 and 3 as well. Not only that, but childbirth comes with real pain and real risk. And... Even with the rise of modern medicine, that's still true. But before the rise of modern medicine, there was a huge fear and a huge angst around childbirth. Many women died during childbirth or as a result of childbirth. Here's another thing that's interesting about Ephesus and particularly about Artemis, the goddess of Ephesus. Artemis of Ephesus was viewed as the great midwife, the one who would offer protection and deliverance during childbirth. That was actually one of um, Ephesian Artemis' central roles. And so I suspect Paul, who spent a good amount of time in in Ephesus, he knew all this. He knew the kind of the flavor of the day. Paul probably has all of this in mind. And once again, he's reminding the women that their hope is in the one true God. He's the one who will deliver them, not Artemis. Um, And that is part of his people. They need to live according to his values and his virtues. And that's why he mentions faith and love and holiness um, with self-control. He wants them to live out God's vision for humanity. He wants them to put their trust in God for their womanhood, not in Artemis or anything else. One other thing that seems to connect with the original situation. It comes out of 1 Timothy chapter 5. And what we learned there is that there's a situation in the church involving widows. The church has an official list of widows that serve the church. And then the church cares for and supports those widows. But a problem has developed. Some of the widows are actually quite young, and they're stirring up some trouble for a variety of reasons. Here's Paul's instructions to them in First Timothy chapter 5. He says this, Now, refuse to register younger widows, that is, don't put them on the list, for when they feel physical desires alienating them from Christ, they want to get married, thereby incurring condemnation, because they have ignored their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but they also become gossips and busybodies, talking about things that's not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, have children, manage their household, and give the enemy no opportunity for reproach, for some have already turned away to follow Satan. Now, we don't know all the details, and we'll do our best to sort it out when we get to 1 Timothy chapter 5 in uh, future recordings. But here's what's important to note for our purposes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. The phrase here in 1 Timothy 5 that says, have children, is actually bear children. And it's the same word as that here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 15. And notice what Paul says at the end, that some of these women have already fallen prey to Satan, just like Eve. So, um, it seems like there are circumstances going on in the church at Ephesus in which Paul says the best solution is for some of the women to get married and to have children as a means of serving God and avoiding temptation and end up following Satan. And therefore, being saved through childbearing is a prescription for that particular problem. And so I think all of that helps make sense of what Paul is getting at in chapter 2, verse 15 motherhood and bearing children is viewed as a noble vocation that should be encouraged and that when combined with faith, love, and holiness is actually a means of serving God and actually maintaining faithfulness to him. It's true. It doesn't preserve women in faithfulness automatically, right? It doesn't keep them from the wiles of the devil automatically. That's why Paul lists off faith, love, and holiness. And it's not possible for every woman. But in view of the creation account and the rest of the Bible, bearing children is a holy calling by which women can pour out her energies in faithful service to God. And the women in the church at Ephesus needed to be encouraged in that direction. For whatever reason, some of them were not choosing that direction, and it was causing problems in the church and causing some of the women to actually leave Christ behind and go their own way. So if Paul means saved through childbearing in the sense of kept safe during childbearing, then he's encouraging them to look to Jesus for that and not to Artemis. And if he means saved by means of childbearing, well, then he's teaching them that marriage and childbearing is a holy vocation that will protect them from some of the specific temptations that they've been encountering and that they need to take it up. They need to take up marriage and childbearing rather than give it up. Either one of those views makes good sense of the immediate uh, language and the original situation of the letter. So to wrap up 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is now giving Timothy some very specific instructions on some of the things he wants to set right in the church. One of the things he wants them to do is to get the whole church to pray for all people in town, for their neighbors, their co-workers, for the rulers and the, the city authorities, for the emperor and all that. He wants the whole church to pray. He wants the men specifically to gather together, to lift up holy hands and to pray and to quit arguing and debating about whatever they're arguing and debating about. And... He has some instructions for the women because there are certainly some problems. It's clear from the whole letter. There are some problems with at least some of the women in the church. And so he wants the women to dress in a way that's respectful and honorable rather than in a showy display of how wealthy and important they are. And he wants them to learn Uh, and gather with the the believers as disciples and learn in a way that has a peaceable spirit about themselves, not a contentious spirit, not a domineering spirit, but under uh, the authority of the church. And so those are some of the the first things Paul wants Timothy to do as he begins to sort things out and set things right in the church at Ephesus. All right, thanks for tuning into this session on the listener's commentary on 1 Timothy. The listener's commentary is a listener-supported crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton for your support. And if you want to join the team of supporters, swing over to listenerscommentary.com. There's two ways you can do it. You can sign up for the study hub and you'll get access to a bunch of bonus materials there, or you can click the give button and you can set up a donation there all monthly donors will get access to the Study Hub. So if you sign up for the Study Hub or you give through the Give button, if you give a monthly donation, you get access to the Study Hub that has a handful of online courses as well as other uh, maps and charts and bonus material to help you dig in and learn and live the Bible for yourself. So thanks a ton for your support. May God bless you for it.